Keith Mosbach, great to see you. Quick question. You, Nick. Thanks for having me, man. What the heck is happening with all these UFOs and UAPs and all that stuff? First of all, just for the record, I want to say that I have turned down multiple media interviews on this because everyone is apparently a balloon expert. And since yes. everyone out there is an expert, there's no reason for <laughs> me to compete to talk about remote sensing, you know, or, or anything, because clearly everyone knows about this. And, and so I just thought, let everyone else have their, have their turn. But for you, you know, <laughs> uh, we can talk about it a little bit, but well, I, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, I'm honored that you would choose to share your actual human real expertise with, <laughs> with us on uh, anything touching intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. So what, what were you initially thinking when you heard about these, these balloons flying across the country? Did your, did your mind immediately go to, this is an ISR asset? Um, you know, you have to think about that. Um, certainly, well, I do anyway, um, because that's my background. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 until I understood, until it became clear, you know, what the dimensions of this thing were and the capabilities of this thing were, um, you know, there's lots of weather balloon action up there. There's lots mm-hmm. of people who are doing experiments in the stratosphere, trying to understand it for all kinds of reasons. And in fact, I was reading a story last night that even in the height of the Cold War, uh, when uh, American scientists would release something up into the stratosphere, uh, Soviet scientists would release things and whatever, they'd float into each other's territory. Uh, The government would take a quick once over just to make sure there was nothing nefarious. And then the scientists would mail back the payloads, right? Like there was this cooperation going on at the scientific level below the blustery level. And I think there apparently was even an incident where they made political hay out of it, but then quietly swapped the instruments anyway. (laughs) So I really first assumed or went to the place of of the probability was that it was some sort of benign instrument. But then as more detail came out, right, the old first reports are always wrong thing. um, It became clear this was much more capable. This this was a a much more significant asset. where our, my mind went immediately was, um, you know, there's a few companies, and I and I know you're involved with with one, I believe that does near space labs, yeah, yeah, does stratospheric balloons. Um, we've worked with, in the past with a company named Worldview, mm-hmm. and they have a stratospheric balloon, you know, and that's what they do. They launch balloons, and that's immediately what I thought was, oh, they just lost their balloon, but uh, apparently it was the Chinese that that lost it. Um, and of course, what what are your thoughts about the president's decision to and I'll, maybe it wasn't the president's decision. Maybe it was the Department of Defense's decision to let it kind of collect across our entire country, wait till it gets out into the ocean, and then shoot a missile at it. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, to be clear, um, I was not involved in any right, way. Right, right. But just watching, like the rest of us, as a as a bystander and perhaps a more informed bystander, mm-hmm. it was interesting to see what OSINT people were posting in terms of what they were seeing on uh, flight radar. And thing you know, certain apps right. that that are showing movement of military aircraft. So we now know, right? The the DoD has talked about a U two that was up and surveilling uh, the the initial balloon. Uh, we know that uh, we saw rivet joint. We saw combat mm-hmm. scent, right? So we saw these um, significant Air Force ISR assets uh, that we know are capable of both collecting and uh, it looked like there were some jamming assets as well. So I, I think it was actually handled beautifully. And then you saw tankers up there. There is no question in my mind that there's not another Air Force in the world that had the capability 
uh, to do what our Air Force did in this case. I think we collected on it when we wanted to, we jammed it when we wanted to, we allowed it to do the things we wanted it to, and then when it got over shallow water and people were out of harm's way, and we've been able to clear the area, right, we drop it into 40 some odd feet of water. I mean, I just think it was handled beautifully. I'm, 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 uh, I'm probably a little biased on one hand, and on the other hand, I think uh, my my record shows I'm I'm not right. hesitant to call out people for stupidity or failure um, in my eyes. And this one just looked really well done. Okay, well, um, well, that's why it's it's good to talk to you because you understand the capabilities of the asset as opposed to just hey, it's a spy balloon. That saying it's a spy balloon doesn't mean much. What are the sensors on it? What can it collect? Um, just to kind of help people out, uh, what could a an asset flying in the stratosphere? What what are the types of things it could collect? What type of yeah, intelligence? Yeah. Could so it collect? you know, you talked about worldview. Uh, I'm an investor in and advisor to Near Space Labs, also a stratospheric imaging company. They they do 10 centimeter imaging. Um, you know, right now from space, we're not able to do that in the commercial world. You're mm-hmm. having to see through the atmosphere. You've got spacecraft that are moving somewhere on the order of 17,500 miles an hour. So when you are uh, below that level, uh, far below that level, mm-hmm. and you're able to move more slowly, and if you are able to, um, via ballast or some small motor, be able to move, change your altitude, which would allow you to uh, determine a little more with respect to speeding up or slowing down your movement, you know, you're, you're actually doing something akin to loitering. You're doing, uh, you're moving much more slowly. So you could collect against uh, uh, com- comments, right? Communications intelligence. You could commit, collect potentially against ELINT, electronic intelligence. And you certainly co- could collect on any number of things in the, in the visible and, and, and near visible spectrum. So they've got power with, uh, as, as we saw with, um, solar panels on there and they were probably mm-hmm. able to put a multi-sensor package is what I would, I would believe, uh, right. was on, on that balloon. Yeah. I wonder if we'll ever actually find out what was on there. You know, um, it, it seems unlikely after you shoot something down the ocean yet, you'd be able to find what was actually on there. Well, I think they've been very open. Well, first of all, I think we developed a lot of information, data and information about it. Uh, mm-hmm. with the aircraft we had up, right? The collection sure, aircraft. Yeah. Uh, we were able to image it. We were able to collect against it in other parts of um, various parts of the spectrum. So one, I think we developed a pretty good understanding there. Uh, two, for all we know in the classified realm, there was other information about uh, the mm-hmm. development and use of that capability previously. Uh, three, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing very publicly that they're able to retrieve certain parts of it and they're going to be able to go just like they do in an accident investigation, right. right? And they piece back together what looks to be nearly an entire airplane that's dropped somewhere into the middle of the ocean. So I do think there's going to be a pretty good developed sense of, of the capability of this balloon. Um, it would be interesting to me, what I thought you were go- going with that question, is how much will be released publicly. That was the next question. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, right. When you, I'm, I'm fascinated by what we did as the uh, invasion of Ukraine ramped up uh, on the part of the yeah, Russians, mm-hmm. uh, and how we were releasing, you know, what would, was clearly classified information that was declassified um, quite purposefully for uh, the ability to call out 
things, whether it was going to be a false flag operation or things that the Russians were saying that didn't comport with reality and we could prove it. Uh, so I think that was a really important uh, milestone in the strategic use of information that was developed from classified sources that was declassified in a way that didn't threaten mm -hmm. sources and methods, but allowed for an informational advantage uh, as, as that, as that unfolded. And I, you know, so I think, you know, how much, how, how far will that extend into the future? You know, I think that's going to be interesting. Right. I've been, I've been touting this, this thought that the intelligence community and, and there has been pushes in certain agencies, but I, I think by and large, I could totally see intelligence being almost mostly unclassified, just given the amount of open source information that exists now. Um, and I think there's always a tendency to overclassify things, of course. You know, it's it's safer just to, ah, we'll just say that this is TS because we don't know. Like, not, not everyone's an expert on why things are classified the way they are. What are your thoughts on just kind of a general intelligence community push towards moving things um, to be more unclassified? Yeah, I, I think the OSINT moment is sort of here. Yeah. Um, you know, there's plenty of people have been toiling away uh, on, on things that we, that, that we know now as OSINT that maybe even weren't mm -hmm. referred to as open source intelligence in the past. Um, but, but it's really sort of coming into its own. I think what Bellingcat did uh, with the Russian shoot down of the Malaysian Airways aircraft really putting that entire story together from openly I'm, available. I'm unfamiliar with that. Can you, <laughs> would you mind giving me the rundown on that? So there was a Malaysian Airways aircraft that uh -huh. flew over uh, Ukraine. It was in, it was in airspace that was being traversed uh, by commercial aircraft. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty clear now that the organization named Bellingcat uh, put together an entire OSINT picture of everything leading up oh. to and what occurred after the shoot down of that aircraft, which was done by a Russian produced anti-aircraft missile uh, system and that had been brought into occupied territory in Ukraine and then brought back out back into Russia. Uh, they have radio communications. They've got social media. They've got mm -hmm. people who posted video. They've tracked, they tracked the missile launcher into uh, the occupied territory in Ukraine, and they tracked it back to Russia. You know, there's pictures of it with, I think, four missiles on the rail and another one with three. I mean, it, it, it was just, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that was a really important moment, you know, in this, in this OSINT journey. And I agree with you that, you know, having worked in the community uh, like you and I have and continue to do, there is a tendency towards overclassification. There's a fetishization of, of classified information. The higher, more highly classified something is, the, the, the more likely it must be to be important and true, right? <laughs> and so give me the highest classification stuff I can get because that's right. the most important. Not true, but that's the way a lot of us sort of grew up, and that is sort of the culture. Uh, and Just And... I'm sorry. Go I was, was going to say, just because it's stamped TSSCI 9000 SAT programs doesn't mean that it's important. It just means that that's, you know, marked and labeled as that to protect those. So, that, so, those so amen. But, right, but yeah. tell me that when you, for the most of the time in this community, when you were growing up, when you saw that stuff, and I remember like the first time having access to stuff like that and 
like shaking, yeah. Yeah. right, with it in my hand. Like, <laughs> I know I'm cleared to see this, right? but I feel like I shouldn't be seeing this. Like, do they know? Like, I'm, I don't know that I'm responsible enough to see this, right? But, but you were shaking, but it, it, it had such a power to it for the right. very reason that we knew how um, sensitive it was and how much we had to protect it. I, look, I think there's a whole psychology behind this. But to get back to your original question, I do think that we've got this, this moment where uh, OSINT is being much more accepted. You know, I, I think we could almost flip it on the, on, on the head of we were in a community and, and there's still parts of this community like this where it's classified first and fill in with OSINT. Mm-hmm. And I really think we're getting to the point where that's that's flipping, right? What do you what can you get from openly available sources? The rich, um, fertile set of openly available sources. How, what can you bring in from that, and then fill in around it with these bespoke, um, you know, high demand, low density, as they're called, assets mm-hmm. that are classified, that are sensitive, that we have to protect. Let's use those by exception to fill in and pick out the pieces we just can't put together uh, with the open source information. I think that's going to be a a much more, again, to your point, much more accepted way of doing business. And that's that's really incredible to think about because that really is a paradigm shift in the way intelligence works. I mean, it really is. And it's going to take a lot of people to change change the way that they think um, about doing intelligence work because you're right. It's it's always been the other way. It's, you know, we're the ones with the, the high powered, high level clearances. We can see all this cool stuff and then uh, maybe we'll go to the open source people to fill it in. And yeah, you're right, man, you it's, know, it's here. It's we're, here. We're, we're geoint people, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I've said for many years, I got in trouble for saying it in the government once. Um, what what'd you get but, in trouble for saying, Keith? I'd well, like to hear but, this. Well, we don't have time for all those stories. But um, <laughs> the, the one thing I, I stood up on a stage when I was in the government and I said, I would not, well, it's two things. So one, I wouldn't build another classified capability uh, until we could in, you know, horizontally integrate the ones we had. We spent so right. much time putting another capability, another capability, another capability, um, and then paying um, little attention to you know, the back end, the downstream, um, how we would uh, tip and queue horizontally across all those vertical capabilities. So I said, one, why don't we pay more attention to that and why don't we not build anything else so we can network that which we have so i got in trouble for that and it was around the same same time that i said i I wouldn't um the only things that we should build in terms of classified space assets um remote sensing assets specifically should be those uh capabilities for which there's no commercial business case Mm -hmm. if a company could do it then we ought to let uh, commercial firms go get it, go after it. Let 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 there be investment. Let the government make some investment to um, be alongside um, private investment, and let's get capability up there uh, for which there is a business case to sustain it. And those things that are niche, those things that are on the edges, those things that are massively expensive to get out a very small piece of of the pie. Build that in the classified realm. Build build those one-off capabilities, and have those be on the government side, on the classified side, and let move everything else uh, to, to commercial. Um, but yeah, I got in trouble for that too. <laughs> so you got in trouble for using common sense and thinking about things in a clear and completely. Look, sane I think there were a lot of way. people thinking these things. I just, for whatever reason, had the 
poor judgment to say them out loud at conferences. You can say cojones on and, here. And, it's and, okay. <laughs> in front of very senior people where that was not necessarily the position, you know, of the government at the time. And when you're, look, when you're a government senior executive, you have a responsibility to, um, you have a responsibility to understand what the government's position is and, and to say that. Um, I, I had this um, piece of my conscience that demanded also that I kind of always say what I thought was, I thought was best for the mission and the taxpayer. Um, mm-hmm. And, and short of, you know, never crossing a, a line that had any, you know, getting close to a line on ethics or law or classified information. Um, I, I, I did feel like I had a license to in certain places um, speak more candidly and, and encourage more debate and more discussion about things and not have them just be sort of accepted right. and, and not challenged. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great quality of a leader to, um, you know, to want your ideas to be run through the muck before, you know, you, you consider them to be um, premier ideas. Uh, you mentioned capabilities uh, uh, and, and integrating new capabilities and things like that. Um, what are your thoughts on this kind of surge in public knowledge and public use of artificial intelligence through large-scale language models like ChatGPT? You now see it's on, right? The, the arms race is on. It is it is 100% on for AI. Uh, Google has Google Bard, which is built off their Lambda um, system. Uh, and then ChatGPT obviously just signed a huge deal with Microsoft to integrate that into their Bing. Um, Man, I could probably sit here and talk to you all day about this. But what are what are your thoughts in general? And maybe we can can kind of go into how the intelligence community can leverage these language models, or should they be just plugging into ChatGPT? What how, how should the intelligence community be using this stuff? Yeah, I, I think it's just what what an exciting time mm-hmm. um, to be alive. I think as an intelligence professional, I can get pretty um, um, morose, right? <laughs> Pretty down right. about uh, the times in which we're living. But I try to be more optimistic about it and to see uh, the arrival of these technologies. And 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 while I certainly there's part of my brain which wants to uh, really think about the sinister applications of these things. Again, I try to try to force myself to be more more positive in my thought. And 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 I think it's just remarkable. And you know the the Chat GPT, the Bard. That is the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Right. Um, I came across a great post on on Twitter that I think had been copied and reposted on 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 LinkedIn that had a whole series of AI powered tools. You know, AI powered voice generation that could be tweaked and changed, and you could put things in your own voice and you know have it go read a book in in your <laughs> voice to record a an audio book or or what have you. So uh, there were decision. Uh, tools. There were there were all manner of AI powered tool sets, and I think that this exposure of ChatGPT will bring along with it lots of awareness of all these other opportunities that that AI you know will bring. And and so yes, I'm 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 fascinated by watching the debate right now as relates to the academic community. And <laughs> I saw two academics right. go at it the other night, and one said. I'm going to run it through a filter and I'm going to make sure that you know, my students don't use this and it's inappropriate and how are they ever going to learn? And another professor said, yeah, it's 2023 and these tools are out there. 
And what I want my students to do is, is to learn how to use them effectively. Because I, my job is to prepare them for the world that is, not the world that was, um, and to push them out there. And, you know, I, I think he was describing a scenario where perhaps even in a, in a freshman class, ha- have a sign a paper, have a student uh, have chat GPT write the paper, mm-hmm. and then have them rewrite it themselves. And what he would grade them on was how much better they could make it than what chat GPT had done. And I, I just thought that was um, brilliant. I, right? Perfect. Yeah. Um, not 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 super complicated, but which what he's what he's asking those young women and men to do is demonstrate to me that you have learned things in this class that you can feed them into that AI model and have the 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 drudgery of the of the writing done. I, I say that with some pain as a liberal arts major, but have that <laughs> have that writing done. And now I want you to do the critical thinking part of how you can improve upon it by inserting the ideas uh, and the facts that we've discussed in class that were, that were in the readings to demonstrate your mastery of the, of the subject. And I really thought that was a fairly simple, but fairly evolved way of, of thinking through the use of those tools in an academic setting. Yeah. Well, kudos to that, that professor, because I agree, you know, I mean, I totally agree that that's, you have to leverage the tools that exist. Um, where does your mind go to immediately when you think of, you know, AI and in the intelligence community? What are the biggest kind of needs that are out there? Obviously, you talked about this explosion of open source intelligence. Um, is that is that kind of where our, our first major investment should be? Well, and- yeah, we've we've been pursuing <laughs> we've been pursuing some of these things for a long time, right? Right. Um, I'm I'm old enough to remember the early attempts at. Uh, automatic target recognition, ATR, uh, aided target recognition, AITR. We were using AI before we even had any idea what it meant. Um, And boy, that was hard. It was just really hard and we never really got it. But we knew that if we could pair people with machines and let the machines do what they do well and let the machine, uh, the people do what they do well, the, the ability to be curious, the, um, the flexibility of the gray matter, um, the wetware in the equation. Mm-hmm. If, if we could find the right teaming, right, of, of, of that them and apply that to whether it was, you know, uh, imagery analysis or all source analysis, that there was going to be a tremendous leap forward in how we were able to do business in the intelligence community and how we were going to take um, when we when we went from limited information, we went from a, a position of scarcity to a position of being absolutely overwhelmed with data and information. How could we make more is only better if you can do mm-hmm. something with it, right? So with these tools, I think we finally have the promise of making volume our friend. And we used to talk about you know, finding a needle in a haystack. And then I remember one time, um, Major General, then Major General uh, John Custer, right, was an Army intelligence leader uh, who, who said, you know, he felt like we were moving towards needing to find a needle in a needle stack. Um, right. <laughs> but I think with, with the application of these tools and the understanding of this, you know, we used to call it human computer interface or human machine interface. I'm sure there's probably a new word for it now. Right, but yeah. How we work through that, I think, gives us great promise to really make make volume our friend 
and to do things inside timelines that are meaningful to allow people, whether it's a decision maker or a commander or a negotiator or a first responder, um, to make a decision or take action inside inside a meaningful cycle. You know, what you, you mentioned earlier about uh, how you know you've kind of had to persuade people within the government to kind of think logically about integrating these capabilities horizontally versus vertically. Um, do you think that the government is has the potential to create something like a chat GPT on the, you know, maybe on the intelligence side or on the cleared side or not? Um, or is this just going to be something that they need to a hundred percent look at uh, Google or open AI and just, and just, procure their technology because in my experience, the government is not well suited to innovate and push the boundaries on this type of stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, obviously you have things like the CDAO and um, stuff like that. That's responsible for pushing this AI agenda within the government. What are your thoughts on, you know, pri- you know, using the commercial sector here, like really leaning on them for this um, even to, especially when in the, instance of Google, Google uh, sometimes they don't want to support the defense industry, right? Because they're, they have some objectionist employees. In there. Um, but what are, what, are you, what are your thoughts there? Well, that was a lot, right? It was I a lot. I'm sorry. I, should have I, need, to, I need you to repeat it to me. I, oh, Keith. No, I'm just kidding. Man. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> hanging on for dear life. I didn't know where that was headed. Um, look, uh, I, I think some of this goes by, first of all, let's acknowledge that the government, right? The government isn't a right. thing. The government. Um, there, the there's government. a lot. Of, there's a lot of things going on under the guise of the government. That's right. And um, boy, that's a whole complicated uh, set of you know the hill, as I like to say when I'm working right. with my early stage startups and they're getting introduced to the you know the, the government. You know, the hill is not a thing. Uh, the House right. and the Senate are not things. Um, they, mm-hmm. they are a whole bunch of of things. And the White House is not a thing. And the Pentagon is not a thing. And 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 there, there are all these. They are a accumulation of things, each of, mm-hmm. each of which has their own motivations and bureaucracies and uh, actions and and cultures. So anyway, let's just stipulate that the government is a lot of different things, right? Um, but I'm I'm going back to your primary question, and I think my answer is this thing that I talked about with respect to commercial remote sensing. Um, why would we try and invent things in the government that people are already tr- doing on the outside? Why aren't we incentivizing people that can go faster, who can go faster um, and, and then bonus off those developments for uh, purposes inside the government, whether it's for the department of transportation or the department of interior or department of Homeland security or defense or intelligence. Why, why, why are we not more leaning in that direction? So I think that's, that's where you were headed in, in, in the way you sort of, you know, shaded the question. And I, and I, I agree with you. It's hard for me to imagine in 2023, what the research arm of some of these organizations inside the government is going to be able to do that couldn't better be done by a much more robustly funded, much more agile, um, you know, in industrial academic world um, that isn't bound by um, government acquisition uh, challenges and government bureaucracy challenges and funding challenges, right? A lot of that 
challenge to do horizontal integration of vertical capabilities is because of the way we fund things. And that's why I'm, I'm very hopeful, right, that there's this PPBES reform uh, study going on because we're way overdue for how we fund capabilities. Because mm-hmm. just by the very nature of the way we fund things, we disrupt the ability to horizontally integrate, right? Because we fund vertically. Yeah, so um, that's interesting. And kind of along the same vein of technology, um, uh, you you see a lot of hype out there right now about the metaverse, you know, the metaverse. Um, I think it's interesting. I've tried on the headsets. I've, I've actually tried to do some work in there. Uh, it's not happening for me, but um, I've, I've tried it and um, I tend to get sick after a little bit, you know, you wear it for 30 minutes. I'm like, ah, this, this ain't right. Um, but I think it'll get there eventually. What are your thoughts on um, geospatial intelligence professionals, intelligence professionals, or even just even industry people, kind of this um, move to work in a digital world? I mean, is that actually going to be a thing or not? Yeah, I think I think we're already there in some regards. Okay. Think about uh, uh, a technician up on a wind turbine, right? Pretty sporty to get up there. Not a lot of people interested in getting up there. The people that get right. up there, um, you, you got to pay them a lot of money. And mm-hmm. uh, when a wind turbine is down, that's costing a great deal of money. Um, so you can't put a whole team up there. But what you can do is put somebody up there who has a broad set of skills and give them glasses, right, that give them access to a whole bunch of people from different companies, different component manufacturers uh, who can say, let's help him diagnose the problem. Let's help him address the problem. And he's got all of that with him, right? Now, that's an augmented reality situation. I kind of connect that uh, from my perspective to the, the, the larger macro view of, of what the metaverse is because i think it it brings in a lot of these things so they i think that augmented world a uh, a maintainer you know working on a, a complicated air force aircraft you know she's able to do the same thing so um the the ability to um enhance collaboration right i'm, I'm sure you know you you were in uh combat situations in operational situations where you were managing all that via chat rooms, right? Mm-hmm. And that was just like a flat <laughs> 2D sort of analog metaverse, right. but it was a metaverse nonetheless. It was it was um, immaterial to you who was where. You learned who you trusted on the other side of those chat windows, who responded when you needed them, mm-hmm. who, 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 who was able to keep up with the pace of operations that, you know, in terms of what your responsibilities were. You felt a responsibility to all these people who you'd never seen and may never meet. Uh, but we, we, we kind of went through a 20-year war running it uh, through chat windows, right, in, in some regards. On the operational side, on the ISR side, I imagine probably even on the logistics side, the medical side, telemedicine. So I think the metaverse, the technologies that bring us forward and allow us to be in a more realistic environment, the the compute power um, to you know uh, to to allow us to to render things. Uh, we talk about digital twins to mm-hmm. operate in in that world makes it more comfortable, makes it more real. And I think there will begin to bl- the, be a blurry 
um, sort of line between between reality and and metaverse, and I think they'll they'll start to come together. And and I and I think there is great opportunity there. And we do have to solve some things, like you know, how long can you wear that headset and have that stimulation uh, before you don't feel well? What are the second and third order effects? What are the longer effects? Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of using those technologies. But I, I think it's here and I do think it's going to flourish. What if, what if uh, it gets hacked and then the, the Chinese are sitting there in the, in the, <laughs> on the off floor with you? Yeah, what are you looking at over there? Um, no, no, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a, yeah. a huge thing. I'm, I'm always reminded uh, back to my Fort Bragg days. We were, right. it, it really functionally was a rehearsal for what we were planning to be an invasion of Haiti in uh, September of 1994 uh, that turned into a humanitarian operation actually overnight while the 82nd Airborne Division was in the air on the way to jump into Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, it went from a combat operation to a humanitarian operation. Um, in, in any event, I remember as we ramped up for that, I, I was in uh, the, the, the core command post and we were actually practicing uh, on that particular evening a, a deep strike, um, um, you know, looking at, at various branches and sequels of things that could happen, but, but a, a set of Apaches that were going from point A to point B. They had been replicated based on a time series hack of where mm-hmm. the aircraft should be, and somebody had just created a PowerPoint, and every. 30 seconds, they, they hit a button and move the aircraft along. But the core commander and everybody else in that room was staring at that screen, watching those aircraft move, but it really wasn't connected to where they were. Now we had <laughs> right. in, in the, in the skiff, we actually had transponders on the aircraft and we were collecting them with national assets. And, and we knew exactly where those aircraft were, but that, that was in, in, in the skiff and this was out. Anyway, there's a point to this. I'll get there. I promise. So, right. I, I said to, I turned to a buddy of mine. I said, "If we were to make the next slide have a couple of those aircraft just go poof, right. I mean, people here would just lose it because they've lost any notion. Some of them never knew that they weren't watching an actual right. um, feed from those aircraft. They were watching a PowerPoint predicted location that was simulating a feed." So back to the Chinese hacking into the metaverse. Once you don't know if you can trust your screen, once you don't know if you could trust what's going mm-hmm. on in, in that, that digital twin, that environment in which you're operating, I, th- I just think that is, um, that's got to be jarring. It's one thing if, if somebody's in there and you don't know it and they're observing you and they're getting information from you in there. Um, but if they're, changing things and making you doubt mm-hmm. your intelligence systems, doubt your command and control systems, uh, I, I think that is remarkably powerful. And, and so, yes, what you've articulated is a massive, you know, a massive risk uh, that comes along with these technologies. Not to mention if we can merge the whole Neuralink thing with, with all that, then you can have them literally hacking into our brains and changing our whatever, changing our thoughts. Um, that's uh, something interesting to think about. Heck, they're already kind of doing that through TikTok, though, aren't they? Yeah, you know, I, lots of people um, on on my Twitter feed certainly calling out the hysteria over the balloon um, while right. while people are scrolling <laughs> through TikTok. So, like, you, yeah. you're you're allowing the Chinese to collect on you 
in your in your house in your hand yeah all day every day but you're worried about the balloon like like you're 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 missing a whole part of this story yeah, i i wasn't one of those people that worried about the balloon too much um but i do have tiktok and and i i'm conflicted there because in one hand you know there's 90 million americans or so using it probably more and at the other hand i i know for a fact that what they can do <laughs> with with that app and with that data so um I'm Whatever. disappointed, I, I'm man. A, I'm disappointed. I know. This is I'm the a, biggest disappointment that will probably I, occur during our conversation. <laughs> I would love, what could I do? I used to incentivize <laughs> um, friends and colleagues um, okay. to, to quit smoking back in the day with an offer of like a steak dinner. What could I do to incentivize you um, as a friend and, and you know, as a patriot kind of like to not be on TikTok? <laughs> what, what, <laughs> well, what do I, I got to do to get you off TikTok today? To, to be fair, so I set a goal this year to create more content than I consume. That was that was my goal, and I thought, what are the avenues where I could, if I created something, where would it go, right? Uh, and now with vertical video, you can create one piece of content and share it on ten different platforms, and um, that's one of the platforms that gets that does the best, performs the best um, as a recruiting tool. It works. Uh, engaging with young people. It works, um, but I can be swayed. I don't know. I'm not 100% sold on it. That, also, that, that, that you know, was... I turn all my stuff off, so I don't... I know they can track some stuff on there, but I try to turn all that, as much of the location and all that stuff off. So they, you can do shoot. better, brother. You can do yeah. better. All right, all right. Well, I'll uh, I'll give it a long, long hard thought and uh, meditate over it, and we'll see. Look, I, and I'm look, I'm not, I'm sure I live <laughs> in a glass house, right? And right, I, I'm I'm not perfect. I, I you saw I, I posted on uh, LinkedIn yesterday. I think that um, one, um, I am no longer surprised by all the um, Russian and Chinese um, young women who want to connect with me on <laughs> <Right>. LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> and two, sadly. <laughs> I, I am perpetually surprised by the number of my colleagues who have accepted those connections. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's a, it's a very blunt sort of open uh, espionage um, because, right. because it's just right there. I mean, it's just right there in your face. There's not, they're not even trying to hide it, Yeah. Um, but it just couldn't, you know, there was, and I was really um, amused that about an hour later I got a connection request. I was like, Oh, now they're just messing with me. Yeah. Yeah. They got you. And um, she she was a, a a young lady, um, Chinese who had graduated from um, NYU, Harvard and Stanford with various degrees all within about four years. Amazing. Um, And then she was the chief financial officer um, of, of L'Oreal, if I recall correctly, her first job out of school. So, I mean, really, it's, it's too bad. That's that the I, one they give you. It's too bad you. that I had to block that young lady. <laughs> She's clearly super accomplished. Yeah. Well, um, and you probably would have gotten a discount on L'Oreal products, but hey, you know, yeah, you had to give that up for something. Um, I wanted to maybe shift gears a little bit. And I know we talked about the, the Chinese spy balloon earlier. Kind of in the wake of that, uh, we've seen... Now, four straight days of um, these unidentified flying objects, UFOs, um, which, by the way, people used to be crazy for saying, talking about UFOs. Now it's kind of like, eh, whatever. Um, now called unidentified aerial phenomenon. Okay, it's a UFO. Um, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on, on 
all these objects being shot down with missiles. Yeah, again, so n not involved, don't have any access to right. any more information than what anyone's seen in the press. Um, I, I was excited to see Mazant, right? Like in a, in, in a, in a mainstream press article. Could, could you maybe explain to people what Mazant is just First level? of all, yeah, I'd like to clarify that it's not named after me. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, it's measurement and signatures intelligence. Um, it is, it is things like, um, you know, there's an explosion, uh, somewhere, a nuclear test, which creates, uh, seismic information and so grabbing that uh, seismic information and then being able to try and figure out what was the size of that nuclear test where exactly uh, on the earth under the earth was that nuclear test uh, and trying to discern things from it um, uh, flying things in the air to uh, sample the air and understand uh, more data and information let's say about some sort of nuclear test there are these you know, these things that sort of fall outside the realm of traditional signals intelligence uh, or geospatial intelligence. Um, I sometimes say I'm, I'm, I'm enamored by the Mazent community because I said, well, mm -hmm. while all the other communities were sort of elephants fighting for resources and um, for to, to be the favorite int, uh, you know, for mom and dad, uh, the Mazenters sort of created a discipline while nobody was looking. And they were picking up the pieces in, in between and, and around and all these very interesting ways of determining uh, where things have happened, how things have happened. Uh, and so that really helped uh, put together a picture. So the article uh, in the paper, um, in the paper, in, in the media uh, talked about um, how putting together sensor information um, that had been used to look at at, mm -hmm. at other things when sort of played back when the tape was rewound, if you will, um, you know, before you take it back to blockbuster, you get fined, but um, <laughs> the, the, the tape was rewound and uh, put through a different filter viewed through a different lens revealed uh, you know, as has been reported that there were other balloon incursions in other parts of the country. And indeed, all over the world, and it made it look like uh, perhaps there was, in fact, a much larger campaign that had been uh, prosecuted over time uh, by the Chinese. And 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 now, China is saying that um, you know we've been flying balloons, or that they've been seeing our objects over their airspace as well. Um, do you do you think all of these objects are? Uh, I want to say Chinese, but do you think they're all? foreign objects or do you think it's more just people putting up balloons and things like that and in the wake of this um the the chinese balloon we're deciding to just shoot them down just just because um uh, like is this stuff happening all the time are there always just things in the air flying around that we don't know what they are necessarily yeah i you know i, I just don't know I, again yeah. based on my reading it looks like there has certainly been lots of use of the stratosphere for scientific experimentation over time. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, we've, we've had these uh, UAP events um, that have been right. released to the public. We've got these recordings of Navy pilots looking at things, seeing yeah. things that are moving at speeds and in ways that no known man-made object can fly um, or move. So um, it, it, 
it is it is curious uh, where, where where do the UAP things end and science experiments mm-hmm. begin, and where do science experiments end and ISR campaigns by adversaries begin? And I and I think the the, the truth is is some combination in there. Although again, the the mm-hmm. hardcore UAP thing. Are there things going on that that we don't understand and can't characterize um, that seem otherworldly? That you know that 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 certainly is. I, I just that's tough for me to get my head around. Uh, you know, there's there's this common misconception that people in the intelligence community we we know where all the UFOs are at, right? We we have them. We're keeping them somewhere. Uh, immediately upon getting your clearance, you are right on to Area 51, and we're taken to the aliens. Um, However, you know, given some of these videos that exist, um, what are your what are Keith Mosbox like? What are your what does your instinct tell you as an intelligence professional when you see these objects from the uh, Navy ISR uh, sensors? What what does your gut tell you? What are these things? Are we being invaded? You know, I, I again, I have no no inside knowledge. My, my family doesn't necessarily believe that <laughs> to your point. Um, I did work at area 58, right? Um, so I was, I was just seven areas away. Right. Um, so, so clearly I must know something. Um, man, there's just clearly things we can't explain. Uh, I think there's a lot of things, um, that, that in, in science though, uh, you, you don't, you don't have to get to, to space, right? Um, there's, there's massive, amounts of things we don't know. We haven't even mapped the bottom of our own oceans. We've got an SUV on Mars with a helicopter flying off it, you know, a drone, uh, but we haven't mapped our oceans. We don't understand fully how weather phenomena work. We don't understand fully how the human body does mm-hmm. certain things. So the the amount we, we, we sometimes, you know, think that, well, we must know everything about everything. And then so these things that happen but I, you know, I, I don't know what that map looks like of, right. of what we know versus what we don't know. But there, there seem to be, uh, there seems to be a lot of stuff we simply don't know and can't explain. Again, starting right in our own bodies, and you think about the science over time that has tried to work on that, and the the data and information and tools we have now to sort that out. Um, and we, and we can't get there. We can't, we can't figure right. out how to cure cancer. Um, so is not, is unsurprising to me that there are things going on, um, mm-hmm. in, in other parts, in, in other realms that we, we can't get arms around and can't explain. And, and science will evolve over time to us, to allow us to do so. I guess the, you know, I think the thing you'd like me to say, and, and I'm happy to say it is, um, you know, how, how, what level of hubris would we have to have to believe um, that we're the only beings in this vast universe, the size of which is almost incomprehensible, um, uh, to, th- to think that we're the only ones that are here and that we're somehow the most advanced ones that are mm-hmm. here and that, that it, that it uh, is beyond uh, the realm of the possible that there are uh, other beings living in other places 
who wanted to come check things out and had the ability to do so. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of just given the size of the universe and the amount of stars and things that we can, just the stuff we can see. This is the observable universe. I mean, we're talking trillions and trillions of objects um, that we can observe. Uh, you know, the odds are there probably are some intelligent species out there. My gut tells me this isn't it. You know, I to, to me, I'm one of these people that, uh, you know, if you're making extraordinary claims, there has to be some extraordinary evidence. And I think people want to believe that they're aliens. They want to believe that they're drones from um, from other uh, galaxies or whatnot. But, you know, there's also something called motivated reasoning, right? People are, have biases towards um, things that they want to be true. I mean, we see this in politics, obviously, but uh, I think UFOs and aliens are kind of in that same vein. They want it to be true so hard, but um, at the end of the day, you got to have some really, really, really good evidence, like really good, wait, even more than than just some some good ISR uh, video, right? Um, that's that's where that's what my gut tells me. But you know, I'm happy to throw that out there, and and I'm you know, if some alien expert wants to come tell me why I'm wrong, I'd be happy to happy to listen. But uh, you know, I got to see some. You got to you got to bring some good evidence. Bring me back, you know, uh, a piece of its toenail or something like that, and then we can then we can talk. Um, yeah, you know, again, what, perhaps the fact that we are acknowledging mm -hmm. that there's things we don't understand, that we have collected yeah. this data and information that uh, we really aren't able to answer, um, uh, you know, in terms of what we're seeing, um, maybe that's a that's a, a good first step. It means that the sure. dialogue will be more open, um, and and that things that have been kept quiet for whatever reason in the in the past will now be more openly discussed and we'll, we'll move towards answers. Look, there's all kinds of things like why, why are these things always seen in certain places and not others? Right. Right. And, um, and, 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 um, like Neil, Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> is wonderful. I love listening to him. I love hearing him take yeah. things that are very difficult for my brain to process and make them in ways that I can even understand. But, but boy, it still leaves a lot of questions. Right. Um, like you said, when we talk about the number of suns and the number of stars and <laughs> number of galaxies and, um, and, and then I, then I start, I go, well, I don't even understand. How are they measuring that? How are they knowing yeah. that? How am I being told that that's a fact versus, um, a really well-informed assumption? And yeah. And it's, what, it's, what I like to think about what it, what is fun for me to think about is, you know, I like to think that we know quite a bit about at least our observable universe, right? Um, and we know a lot of that because of Hubble. Uh, what are we going to know in 10 years with this James Webb Space Telescope? You know, um, And I know you're involved with NASA, NASA's Landsat program, or at least we're involved. Um, you know, it just, it, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit, about the new, the new Landsat um, system going up. But it just, it blows my mind to think about how dumb we actually are right now. Like not, I don't mean dumb in a sense of, you know, like we're not, we can't figure things out, but we just don't know so much, uh, information. And, um, I think it's interesting to consider, you know, 10 years from now, are we going to be looking back and saying, why didn't we see that? You know, why didn't we think of that? Um, I think it's a interesting, interesting thought to ponder. Yeah. Uh, two thoughts on that. Um, mm -hmm. There was a story I read yesterday about a piece of the moon, uh, a piece of the sun breaking okay. off, 
right? It was a sensationalized uh, headline. Sure. And when, when I, I, you know, I clicked, I, I fell for the clickbait. They got <laughs> and, and when I dug into it, it was, well, wait a minute, we're just seeing things. We have the opportunity to see things we've never right. been able to see before. So it doesn't mean they didn't happen before. It means we couldn't see them before. Um, and it wasn't a piece of the sun, you know, breaking off, uh, but, but, but rather just, a, you know, some sort of phenomenon we, we, we'd never been able to capture. And so that we didn't understand that it happened or how it happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with you that as we are able to sense in broader parts of the spectrum and we're going to get the types of things we get from a really remarkable instrument like uh, the James Webb uh, Space Telescope, uh, we're going to have to come up with explanations for these things we're going to see that we previously had not been able to. And I you know, I've got uh, five kids, and I, I remember my, my daughter was taking biology. It's one of the few sciences where I'd actually done okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I, yeah, I, I couldn't get past chemistry. I mean, it took me three times to, just to pass, but I never moved on to physics because too much. So um, I, was, I wanted to help her with her biology homework when she was a freshman in high school. But there was all this stuff that I had never learned. And it, and again, it seems like a duh moment, but it's because there were things discovered in the last 30 years, it turns out, (laughs) that are now in (laughs) biology textbooks that are now being taught. And no, I wasn't exposed to them. And no, I didn't learn them when I was doing rote memorization of, you know, species and genuses or whatever, um, and, and dissecting a, a pig, you know, um, or a frog. And, and, and so there was all this stuff she was learning that I could not help her with because that was new knowledge um, that I'd never seen. Right. And I, I just, I, that was a really important moment for me. And I think it goes to exactly what you've just articulated. My, my brain immediately goes to the food pyramid. You know, when I, when I was a kid, the food pyramid, they were basically saying, hey, eat all this bread. Eat as much bread as you humanly possibly can. Um, and I'm not sure look, that was the lesson, Nick. I think that the, the, that the is bottom, what I heard as well, but I'm not sure. The was bottom the was bread. The whole bottom of the pyramid was bread. Eat no, this no, bread. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, clearly adhered to that, but I'm not sure that that's what they wanted us to learn. <laughs> well, that was my takeaway, FDA. Yeah, yeah. Whoever <laughs> put that two out. Of us. Um, well, very, very cool. So, um, you know, kind of, kind of jumping back to the to these. Uh, unidentified objects. What are your thoughts on wasting a three hundred thousand dollar missile on a weather balloon or whatever it is? It's all relative. Um, yeah. it, you know, uh, th- think about a three hundred thousand dollar. And I don't know if that's the number. It might not be. Um, I yeah, it, just to clarify. For, for sake, I don't. For, I'm not a missile yeah. purchasing expert. Yeah. So but, for the sake of this discussion, yeah. it's three hundred thousand dollars. That's right. Um, but if you think about that in the r- relative to the entire defense budget, um, you right. know, um, and, and that's, and that's not always a super helpful way to think about things. <laughs> I acknowledge, um, you know, there's some of these same arguments about the weapons that are being used in Ukraine, right? At, at mm-hmm. what cost, um, are we trading sophisticated air defense, uh, costly air defense weapons uh, against a relatively cheap drone, for instance, right? So that's a, mm-hmm. that's another that's another discussion. But I, I think um, we've we've provided tools 
to, to be used um, for situations that arise. And I'm sure that a very thorough decision process um, you know, was developed. Uh, it's weaponeering, right? We're, we're most um, familiar with how it might be done for a building or a vehicle or an, an open area or a, a underground facility. But in this case, I'm sure they went through the same sort of weaponeering uh, decisions. I saw somebody questioning yesterday, well, why didn't they just use their guns? You know, it would have been a lot cheaper. Um, but I, Maybe. I, 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 know, I know that those people to be pretty professional. And as an Army guy, I, lo- I love to give a lot of crap to, to, to the Air Force. You know, my, my line is always, um, I, I don't particularly like the Air Force, but I'm glad they're ours kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't want to fight against them. Um, but in this case, I, I, they're professionals. They're really good at what they do. They're really, really good at what they do. And right. if that was the right, um, if that was the right tool for the job, uh, then you know that decision rests with them. Yeah, uh, and I agree in, in terms of how professional the Air Force is. I've worked with them in multiple areas on different types of operations, and night and day, um, they they get the job done, and they're they're really good at what they do. You're right, man. They're Man, they they have it down ice cold. Uh, when you want to eliminate something on this earth, call the Air Force. Uh, they'll 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 make it work. Um, you mentioned Ukraine. I did want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, uh, there's been some. Well, uh, the the most recent development is you know some some more thought has gone into sending aircraft, you know, uh, or combat aircraft over to Ukraine. What are your thoughts on just this proliferation of? Hey, we're going to send them. Sixty-four billion dollars. We're we're not sending tanks. We're going to send them some tanks. Uh, now we're sending combat aircraft. At what point does Russia say? And it, as an intelligence person, um, uh, at what point does Russia say? You know, these pe- we're basically at war with the United States. Yeah, this this is this is tough. And and so mm-hmm. um, yeah, I've got both uh, a political science major and a longtime student and student of history and operations professional, intelligence professional. Um, this, this is really vexing. Um, I think on one hand, I can very confidently make the argument um, that not stopping Russian aggression in uh, Ukraine has implications for all of Europe, uh, mm-hmm. for a free and stable Europe. Uh, I believe that indeed the Chinese are watching, uh, and that Taiwan is in the balance. Are you know another discussion about whether the American people are, are willing to go to global war um, over Taiwan? Another subject, but right mm-hmm. now it is our position um, to keep to keep a free in, uh, uh, Taiwan, a relatively free Taiwan, and and so I I do see the urgency um, to face the aggression aggressively in Ukraine. Um, it's unfortunate, right? The, the Cold War we always planned was going to be played out on, on the plains of the Fulda Gap and mm-hmm. how we were going to stop the Warsaw Pact from getting to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and that, in, in a way, it's become a bit of a pseudo-proxy war uh, that's being fought in, in Ukraine, I, I do think when I see the, I, I wonder, I, I really work to understand the elements of national power at play, the decisions that are made 
when we show Bradley fighting vehicles being put onto a roll-off, roll-off ship, mm-hmm. when we watch them being unloaded in Europe, when we watch them uh, being rail uh, transported, you know, towards Poland. Um, and what are like what are we doing? Is that is that right. messaging supposed to be pushing Russia to capitulate? Um, what what is um, what is Putin's motivation? What is the end game for Putin? Um, you know, when he looks at things like uh, what happened to Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi, uh, what what right. you know, what what does he think? Is there is there a scenario here where he retires and is DACA? And is very comfortable and lives happily ever after, you know, as the richest Ooh. man on earth. Yeah. And I, so there's, man, there's just a lot of stuff at play here. But I, I'm, I hear you, Nick, and I echo that that concern is acute for me. One, so one, we have to face down the aggression because of um, what it means if we don't. But two, how far do we go and how publicly do we do it, um, um, lest it have an, uh, create a response or an effect that we aren't able to necessarily anticipate or control. Wow. That's, that's a lot to swallow right there, Keith. <laughs> you asked the question, man. That's a great, well, that's a great freaking answer. That's what I'm saying. That's a great answer. Um, you know, my, my thought is, man, you, you mentioned Saddam and Omar Gaddafi and obviously Putin is no fool. He's seen he's seen what happens if you mess with the United States. Um, and at the same time, those people didn't have nuclear weapons, right? Um, man, I got to say, it really scares the bejesus out of me that this guy has nuclear weapons and he might be put in a position where he has no choice but to use them. Um, I hate to predict the future because I, I, I don't think anyone can predict the future. Um, but I don't see this ending well for Putin and, and I don't see it ending well for anybody. Uh, what do you, do you think? No, that... it's, it's, it's a really tenuous scenario and right. it, we've become, I think at the macro levels, we've become a bit numb to it, right? There were, mm-hmm. there were these uh, chest tightening moments, you know, or relatively early on. And, um, and, you know, mm-hmm. were we going, were we on the brink of, um, you know, t- tactical nukes being used in Ukraine? And if tactical nukes were used in Ukraine, what was our response going to be? What can use of tactical nukes be um, tolerated without a, a significant response? And if there's a significant response, what mm-hmm. does that then beget? Um, but we've, right let's let's channel back x number of months where there was there were these moments and now there just don't seem to be these moments it's just like we've we've moved on and Mm -hmm. we're focused on other things and um you know you know the 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 ante is is getting higher and higher on both sides and and I, i do think it's a very dangerous moment uh in history that we ought not to be be casual about. And I'll point out, and I, I watched the video that you did for Wired, where you're teaching people how to read and analyze satellite imagery. Also say, if you're listening to this or watching it on YouTube, uh, definitely check out that video. Look up Keith Mosbach Wired, how to uh, look at satellite imagery, how to analyze satellite imagery. It's an awesome video. Um, 
he doesn't go too in depth and trust me he's much he could go probably way further in depth he could probably do a 50 minute video on that two hour video on that um but you but i caught something in there that you you mentioned uh this was in july 2021 you were talking about the way that russia was you know assembling their military forces and moving their equipment and i didn't hear you say hey it looks like they're doing it again looks like they're going to invade ukraine but you kind of alluded to it i mean is it safe to say that you predicted this in july 2021 on video i mean we saw it we all saw it. i'm not yeah. going to take any specific credit for this yeah um you know okay. take a look at jeffrey lewis uh, uh you know out of cns in monterey you know, he, uh, there, there were lots of people in the OSINT community that were just watching. The Russians weren't trying to hide it. Right. Um, and there was no way for them to hide it. Right. This, that's what this proliferation of commercial remote sensing has created a new global transparency. So it was all there for the world to see. Uh, I, I, I was just saying, yeah, we've, we've seen this before and we're seeing it again. And uh, it, it was relatively clear uh, that it was a lot more than posturing, right? And that, that goes to, I, I think I may have mentioned in that video, mm -hmm. when, when you start to see, you know, what, what was one of the, the key indicators that, that the OSINT people were talking about. When you start seeing blood uh, supplies shipped to the front lines, right? When you see right. Support, right. You know, support units that are um, very specialized, like water purification units or mortuary units, Mm -hmm. um, when you, when you see those types of things moving towards the front, it's, it's not just an exercise and it's not just, a um, some chest thumping, uh, but it, it, it is, it is almost unambiguous preparation for, you know, some, uh, an invasion in that well, case. I was trying to give you credit for predicting it, Keith, <laughs> but, uh, let's just say at least you're on video saying it. So that's good. Um, I want to kind of jump over to, uh, you know, we talk a lot about um, the intelligence community, uh, and I've been trying to kind of get over this general sense that I think there's just massive misconceptions about what the intelligence community does, uh, and more specifically about what NGA does, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. I posted the video on a few of my social media accounts, including TikTok. Um, it's gotten tons of views uh, on there, and but more interestingly, the comments on there. Um, the video is of Joe Rogan and Tim Dillon. And it's their, the first time that they learn about what NGA is. And, you know, the video goes out. They, they say, 16,000 employees. What are these people doing, right? Um, but less about Joe Rogan and more about the comments because the comments are, are showing us what the general consensus is what do people actually think about this not maybe not general consensus what 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 does the public think about um this agency that they've never heard of um i always like to say that nga is the largest it's the largest agency that no one's ever heard of um what are your thoughts on just the general misconceptions on what nga is what geospatial intelligence is and how do we how do we fix that yeah you know the it's interesting. And just for the record, the last time I cared about anything about Joe Rogan was when he was in Fear Factor. Right. That was a great show. I think he had um, hair then too. I, well, I so. appreciated it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not sure what's happened to him since, but but Fear Factor fan, yes, uh, current Joe Rogan, I don't have any use for. But um, the that that exchange was really 
it, it was amusing, you know, like for someone whose uh, Twitter handle is at GeoInter, right? It could help right. but be amusing and interesting. And when you and I talked about this, uh, preparing for this, I think I sent you a link to mm-hmm. uh, a story from, uh, I, I'm not remembering now if it was 2009 or what have you, when President Obama was at a Five Guys and asked a couple of guys what they did. And they said they worked at NGA. He said, what's that? And, you know, that got a lot of press at the time. So there was a hope, you know, when when Jim Clapper was the director of national intelligence um, and Robert Cardillo was the director of NGA, there was a real, uh, the idea was geospatial intelligence was something that we could talk about far more readily uh, than any other of the disciplines because of the nature of Mm -hmm of the classification and, and how much unclassified stuff goes into it. And so there was a hope that like the, the lead, the lead story about opening up more to the American people about the intelligence community, this, this relatively, you know, elegant, remarkable, eye-watering capability, um, hardworking people uh, that are mm-hmm. sort of toiling away quietly in defense of the nation um, that we could open it up and we could say, here's, here's what you're getting for your investment. Here's the return on investment. Uh, you know, some of that even had to do, uh, in post Katrina and Rita where, right. uh, where, um, where you know, NEMA, uh, really, uh, and well, NGA really distinguished themselves. NEMA had, had done it earlier. The, 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 the agency that came before NGA, the national imagery and mapping agency, Mm-hmm. But, but, um, you know, painting vehicles blue and gray and, and putting them in, in, in fire truck, you know, type, um, form factors and putting a big NGA seal on the side and showing them that those show up at the Super Bowl and they show up at the world series and they show up in support of, um, uh, inaugura- presidential inaugurations and they show up for natural disasters and this is, you know, on the back of billions of dollars of investment in these capabilities to provide warning and understanding and prosecute wars overseas, that those same capabilities within uh, you know, strict adherence to the law and policy can be used to keep Americans safe at home and to rescue Americans who are in need. Um, and, and, and so there was a hope that that, that would mm-hmm. be the case. But you know, the, that Joe Rogan exchange, other things you see in the media, you know, the comments there, we clearly didn't do. And, and, and mm-hmm. I was trying to be part of that as well at USGIF, being out and talking about it. And um, we clearly haven't done a good enough job of explaining to, to, to the people who pay for this, the American people, you know, um, to the extent we can, what they're getting in return for their investment. Uh, and I think that's that's a great point because NGA is one of those, I like to call it, they're one of the good agencies. You know, They support all, like you, you talked about all these different things they support. They support all the agencies. They support uh, military up, down, left, and right. And um, I think you know, as far as agency go, agencies goes, <laughs> they're, they're one of the good ones. And um, one of the comments was 16,000 friends and family of senators you know, making 90K a year salaries. It's, it's just not it's just not true. Right. I mean, like you talked about, they're incredibly hardworking people that are, um, supporting a number of things from safety, you know, the safety of navigation to, um, building the maps that we all 
love and cherish, right? Um, kind of, um, you mentioned the USGIF. I did want to ask about that. For, for anyone listening that might, might not be familiar, I was wondering if you could kind of give a rundown on what U, USGIF is and what it does and what your involvement is still or was. Yeah, so... You know, the, the history, um, and I'll, I'll try to be brief whenever I say that, my kids roll their eyes. But um, <laughs> uh, it goes back to these precursor organizations that go back to things like the Army Map Service and the Aeronautical uh, Charting and Information Center and the Defense Mapping Agencies. These wonderful, this wonderful heritage that, you know, if we had more time, I could trace it all the way back to the first surveyor uh, in right. chief, right? George Washington, um, you in know, a, hot a, air balloon? a, a surveyor, huh? no, just on, on, <laughs> on horseback, but, um, that's where you go for a higher vantage point or some high ground, but right. We, the lineage goes all the way back there, Lewis and Clark, right? They weren't just out wandering around. They were on an intelligence mission. They were mapping what was going on out there as we thought about the expansion of our nation and, and threats to the, to our, our, our young nation. So, in any event, fa- fast forward, um, there is a, a move to combine imagery and mapping. There are things that are completely related but still managed very separately. Uh, imagery, uh, remote sensing in the National Photographic Interpretation Center under the auspices of the CIA, mapping under the Defense Mapping Agency. And while there is a really important relationship between the two, they were managed separately. So they were brought together, forged in sort of a shotgun marriage into the National mm-hmm. Imagery and Mapping Agency. Um, and you know, if I remember correctly, that's sometime right around 1996. Um, the problem was two very different cultures. You have the National Photographic Interpretation Center. These are CIA employees. Um, some of them are covered. You know, people aren't allowed to know their last names, operating at a very high security right. level. Uh, and you had people in unions in St. Louis wearing coveralls operating uh, massive German printing presses, 24-7, 365 printing maps. So very, very different. Two-thirds of that National Imagery and Mapping Agency came from the mapping world, one-third from the, uh, the intelligence world. It was NEMA was created from all or part of 13 different agencies, but, but mostly NPIC and, and DMA. So... Um, it just really struggled. It really struggled. There were people, even after the agency was created, mm-hmm. who felt like it ought to be torn back apart, that it wasn't meeting its need. Uh, and that um, when, again, Jim Clapper was set to take over the National Imaging and Mapping Agency, uh, let's see, 11, 12, 13, I think it was Friday the 14th of September 2001 was the day that um, there was going to be a big tent and cake and, and punch <laughs> And uh, Jim was going to take over the agency. 9-11 happens on the morning of Tuesday, you know, Tuesday morning, if I recall correctly, um, 11 September. And he becomes the director the next day. Lieutenant General uh, Jim right. King, Army General, says, over to you. We're not having any confusion about who's in command. It's yours. I'm out. Call me if you need help. You got it. Um, but Jim said every day he went through, and, and NEMA distinguished itself very, very well in the wake of 9-11 and operations in the Middle East. And Jim said, but every day he drove through the gate, he remembered he had been asked to lead an agency that had been developed to integrate imagery and mapping. 
And yet every day he drove past a sign that said the National Imagery and Mapping Agency. Um, so lots of stuff happened. Mm -hmm. um, fast forward. Um, the idea is let's create the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Let's get rid of the word imagery. Let's get rid of the word mapping. But let's keep intelligence and keep geospatial to celebrate the heritage um, that I described. And get rid of the what I refer to as the divisive ampersand and mm -hmm. take on the magic hyphen. Because <laughs> one of the things that was really disconcerting, and if you've ever worked in the Beltway, you understand this, is that National Imagery and Mapping Agency was four letters, and all the cool agencies were three letters. And this was a problem, and NEMA always felt like a second-class citizen. So by making it the National Geospatial Hyphen Intelligence Agency, we the magic hyphen makes that three letters NGA, and not NGIA. And so that was really important. Uh, but it also marked an important uh, point to say we're, we are going to celebrate our history, but we are going to move forward thinking about this differently in an integrated way. And it was really, really important to the workforce, to the culture, to getting on with this idea of integrating these disciplines and in in, in thinking about it in a different way as applied to operations and the needs of, of the customers. So this, this takes place, and now I will finally get to the answer of your question. Mm -hmm. No, that's um, The idea story. this happens, um, and it's uh, enshrined in law in the NDA, uh, NDAA and the sign into law um, in, in 2003. So the FY 2004 uh, National Defense Authorization Act. So it's, it is signed. It goes into effect on 1 October 2003. There is a celebration where industry and academia and government come together uh, in New Orleans, um, uh, sponsored by a number of the major uh, industry partners. Eleven partners came together at the time, and, and it was remarkable. It was truly a celebration and acknowledgement of why this was important and how this came together. And, you know, George Tennant was there and... Jim Clapper and Mike Hayden, the director of now NGA mm -hmm. and the director of NSA, were on the stage together. They gave a joint keynote about the power of integration. Um, and the, the organization that these uh, business people and the government had asked to run it um, just had some challenges with it and, and, and didn't really embrace the idea of what the opportunity space was. So the event happens in October of 2003 the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation is born by these same executives and these same companies in January of 2004 uh, with one employee, a bunch of money put <laughs> into a bank, a 501c3 educational nonprofit, not a trade association created very specifically to focus on the trade craft and the future of this new thing we call geospatial intelligence. Uh, and it took off. And once again, they were in New Orleans with the event in 2004. It doubled in size in October of 2004. It was a remarkable gathering. Uh, the exhibit hall moved out of uh, sort of ballrooms and, and into much larger space. And uh, it really began to take off. And then they had four employees and five. Um, in 2005, they made the decision to change the venue. And they actually went to San Antonio that year. Mm -hmm. Very fortuitous because that was in the fall of 2005. And we know that um, in, in, in end of August, beginning of September 2005, Katrina and Rita hit 
mm. um, right? And 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 New Orleans is just devastated. So had they planned to go back to New Orleans in the fall of 2005, there was no way to do that. The convention center was underwater and housing, you know, refugees, displaced right. people. So in any event, it, it continues to, to grow over time. And I had the opportunity, I left the government in the spring of 2008 uh, and had the opportunity to go there as the CEO, uh, president and then CEO. And I was there for a decade and we had about 120 members when I got there, about 250 when I left, we experienced this, you know, we, we tripled, quadrupled the staff. We started with three schools that we accredited to grant GEOINT certificates. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time I left, we were probably at uh, 18, 19, 20 schools. Uh, we'd awarded over a million dollars in scholarships, right around $100,000 a year in scholarships to people studying in the field. Uh, and the GEOINT Symposium grew. You know, our largest number was, I think, in 2015, we had 5,500 attendees. Wow. Um, you know, hundreds of companies on the exhibit floor and many hundreds of companies uh, represented along with government agencies, 20, you know, international, 20 countries represented uh, at the event. And, and it was it, it was just really it was the time for GEOINT to grow. We were putting mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of money um, you know, into what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa. GEOINT was coming into its own. It was growing as a discipline. It was growing as a capability. Uh, and, it, and it's been on a wonderful trajectory ever since. As you kind of look back on that, that time as the, the CEO of USGIF, which by the way is a great organization, uh, what Keith is talking about is the, the GEOINT Symposium, which is held every year at a different location. And he, he talked about in 2015, having what, 5,500 people there. That's a ton of people in this space. This is these are intelligence professionals for the most part. Um, that's that's a lot. That's a lot of intelligence people in the same space. Um, what it, what do you what are what is your favorite memory of kind of running that and kind of looking back? What what, what comes to mind? Yeah, I, you know, I, there were there were just so many things. Um, you know, starting the young professionals group that we did, uh, Carrie Drake, uh, who's now at Maxar, was was working at the foundation at the time. And uh, she just took on this um, mantle of starting the young professionals group. And then uh, we wanted to show our commitment to young professionals. So we actually put two young professionals on the board of directors as voting members. Oh. So are, are we committed yeah. or aren't we? Well, we're committed. <laughs> so boom. So I, I went into a board meeting four times a year where I had two young professionals sitting there who I reported to and right. had to make sure that I kept faith with, along with executives mm -hmm. from you know, companies large and small. Um, and, and then we started the golden ticket program, which was sponsoring, uh, 20, 25 young professionals to come to the GEOINT symposium where often it's more senior people or people right. who are assigned to stand at a booth all day. But these were, uh, 25 young professionals that we sponsored to come to the event and then put a special program for, and they, they effectively were treated as VIPs. Uh, you know, if you have 4,000 people at the event, there might be 150 invited to the chairman's reception, the top level supporters of the organization, the government VIPs. Well, we brought in the young professionals and they were in there talking to the DNI and talking to the director <laughs> of NGA and talking to right. four star generals. And I think that commitment to young professionals um, was something that that I'm really proud of. I guess the last, you know, 
thing I, I could do this all day, but um, you know, just a wonderful staff, wonderful volunteers. Uh, in the fall of 2013, uh, there was a government shutdown days before mm-hmm. the GeoInt Symposium. Uh, it's a long story because it looks like it looked like we could still do it, and then Congress made a decision that we just couldn't. And so it was the first time we were going to be in Tampa. Everything was set. Half the staff was already down there. We were executing, uh, and we were wiped out. No govies could Oof. travel. No government people, obviously, could be speakers. And we had to pull the plug at really mm-hmm. the 11th hour and 59th minute. All the freight had been shipped, all the booths. Oh. Right? You can imagine the size of the operation. And we, we worked very quickly with the Tampa Convention, Convention and Visitors Bureau. And we were able, the, shockingly, the open space that was available in the spring, the nearest time we could have the event, um, was the week of Easter and Passover and spring break. <laughs> I, you know, I wonder why it was available. <laughs> and we decided, right. you know what, we're going to do the symposium that week. And people can bring their kids and we'll have religious celebrations off to the side. We'll do whatever it takes, but we're right, going right. to make it work. And uh, we had printed all the signs. You know, it's a nonprofit organization. We'd spent all this money to print all mm-hmm. the signage for the event. And we got together as a staff and we said, well, what are we going to do? I mean, we can't throw all these signs out that say GeoInt 2013 and make them GeoInt 2014. We're not changing the theme. Right. Um, and so I think one of the young staff members came up with the idea that we would just print asterisk stickers and we would <laughs> refer to the event in Tampa in the spring of 2014 as GeoInt 2013 asterisk. And there we changed go. the website and we slapped asterisks all over the signs. And our entire community just rolled with it. They found the humor in it. They found, mm-hmm. because that, as you know, is the nature of the GeoInt community. It truly, I don't use the word community lightly. It truly is a community of professionals who genuinely um, sort of care about the mission, care about each other. Companies that are, you know, brutal competitors in a business sense will turn right around and partner on other things to include philanthropy. When people mm-hmm. came and volunteered at USGIF, they left their corporate affiliations at the door and did what was right for the greater good. And um, I think that 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 year, and the last thing I'd say about that was over 90% of our attendees who had paid their registration to come to Tampa in the fall allowed us to hold on to their registration money till the spring. And over 90% of the companies that had paid for booth space allowed us to keep their money and hold it to the spring because we very easily could have had a mm-hmm. liquidity challenge, right? Uh, right. If we had to return all that money because we still had uh, lots of costs. Um, and that, that just to me says everything about what's right about USGIF and what's right about our community is everybody understood what happened and everybody supported what we did in a very selfless way. And it, and uh, the GeoInt 2013 asterisk was, was a really special <laughs> celebration after all that, um, all those challenges. Okay, well that's that's interesting. I, I do remember um, that one. I was there, so uh, it was great. It was awesome. It was a good time. Um, as far as the, are you still involved with USGIF at all, or just tangentially? I stayed on the board uh, okay. for a while after I left. Uh, Rhonda Schrank is the CEO. They've got mm-hmm. a wonderful board. Robert Cardillo is the chairman. Um, it is blossoming. You know, after some real challenges, as you can imagine, during during COVID, 
wiping out an entire GEO mm-hmm. symposium, a critically important source of revenue for the organization. Um, I, the one thing uh, that I appreciate uh, Rhonda and the leadership allowing me to do is uh, I speak to the young professionals, the golden ticket winners, mm. um, the morning they arrive um, uh, for the event. And I, I hand my tradition is that I hand out a book that I've chosen uh, that has to do with professional reading to encourage them to do professional development and professional reading and why it's important that they do that. I share a little bit about, um, you know, the journey of USGIF and geospatial intelligence and what it means to be part of the cohort of the golden ticket winners, um, because that's a cool, unexpected thing that happened, cool. Nick, yeah. is not only we always wanted to build a horizontal cohort each year, but now we got like 10 years of cohorts, <laughs> right? Right. And so people who started off as golden ticket winners are now um, CEOs of companies. And so they walk up to golden ticket winners and go, I was you, I was right right where you are. And I know it's hard for you to imagine, but I'm the CEO of one of these companies now. See that booth over there? That's mine. But the, my first day here was as a golden ticket winner. And when that vertical, um, um, coming together of those cohorts of those young professionals, Mm -hmm. um, I cry at movies and stuff, so I'm sappy. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but I get goosebumps when I think about that, and that's um, that's just to me the essence of the organization. So I'm I'm thrilled that I get to to still do that every year. Okay, so what book are you handing out this year? Will you reveal? Um, oh, no, I can't possibly reveal that okay. yet. All right, all right. Well, uh, hopefully it's hopefully it's a good one. Um, so I wanted to just kind of go more along the lines of what you're working on now. I mean, you're you're involved with a number of companies. Um, can you kind of like give us a rundown on what Keith Mosbach is up to these days? Yeah, when I left USGIF, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Um, I left at the end of calendar year 18. I'd been there a decade. It was time to do something else. Um, my, my wife had unfortunately passed away in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I had two kids, uh, two sons out of school, twin sons in college, and um and my daughter still at home who was a junior in high school and i just wanted to be present for her college search uh, and to get her launched mm-hmm. and uh, a company reached out the very first company i have a first conversation i probably had was with robbie shingler from planet who asked mm-hmm. if i would consult and i said well I, I'd, I'd love to robbie I, I don't know what how to do that <laughs> I, I don't have a company i don't have a, <laughs> a i don't know what to charge you but the answer is yes and i'll figure out the rest of it um, but the, so that was the very first conversation, which was probably, you know, uh, the middle of January, 2019, we were out at a conference in, uh, San Francisco. Um, another, another company talked to me and then I got this fantastic cold call, if you will, on LinkedIn from Hermius, uh, guys who were three months into building, uh, a hypersonic airplane. And they described what they were doing and they'd like me to be an advisor. And I said, I don't know anything about startups and I don't know anything about hypersonics and I don't know what an advisor does. But yes, I'd be very interested because they told me <laughs> they had Rob Meyerson, uh, mm-hmm. who had just left as the CEO, the first CEO of Blue Origin and had scaled Blue Origin and Rob mm-hmm. Weiss, who had just left as the um, uh, head of Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. And I said, I, try, I don't understand your judgment about why you think I belong in the room with the two of them, but I'd love to take this on just to be in the room with the two of them. And then it just snowballed. And then I asked the Hermes guys if I could invest. I said, look, as an advisor, it feels like I just sprinkle pixie dust 
and then I go away. <laughs> but all of you are all in. Like you, you are all in. Like every part of mm-hmm. your future finances, uh, your families have bought in. And I, I just feel like I'd like to have skin in the game. I, I don't have a lot of money, but what, what's a cap table? How do I get on it? Can I, do I have enough to, and they said, yeah, we're, we're, this is a very early stage. You can do that. And then I accidentally became an angel investor. Um, and so <laughs> every company, well, because I, I, you know, arguably I still don't know what I'm doing, but, um, neither every, do most angel investors. So don't worry. <laughs> every company that talked to me about, um, you know, about possibly advising, I said, well, I'd like to do that. I believe after I believe in your team, I believe in your tech, I believe in the need, I believe in the opportunity. Um, If I'm going to advise, I would also like to invest modestly so that Mm -hmm. I have skin in the game with you. And and then so that just caught on. So I do a, I do a combination of retained consulting uh, and advising Um, now on the board of a company as an independent director uh, will soon be uh, on the proxy board of a company. Uh, and each of these things is just very instructive. I was a nominative mm-hmm. board member on a, on a SPAC. Um, and the, the way I learn is by doing. Um, it's difficult for me to just read about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to touch it. I need to be involved in it. And once I touch it and do it, used to drive my soldiers crazy. Uh, you know, it was when I became an intelligence officer, I go, look, just let me touch things once. And I promise <laughs> I'll never touch them again. But I just have to touch them once. I want you to walk me through it. And then I've got it. And um, not necessarily well, but at least I got it. Right. Uh, and, and so, so um, I, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to take this experiences that I've had over time, over the length of my career, and now have the opportunity to give back. And What's been surprising to me, Nick, is I worked with all the big companies my whole career, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, um, Boeing, and and now I don't work with a single publicly traded company. I've I've fallen, again, sort of accidentally into this niche of working with startups and teams and the the adrenaline and the passion um, Mm -hmm. is just phenomenal. It's, it's, uh, It's probably a bit addicting. And, um, I'm, I'm just super fortunate to be able to add, you know, I think to add value to these teams who, um, who who give me the opportunity to be part of their dream and their vision. Well, you're very humble, Keith, because I think they're lucky to have you personally. Um, you're involved with a number of different companies and I know, you know, mom and dad aren't supposed to pick their favorites, but, um, out of all the companies that you're involved with right now, which one are you the most bullish on? Which one? Yeah, you you, think- you said you were going to ask this question, man. And, and yeah. you know, I had 250 member companies at USGIF. Mm-hmm. And I said, always, always, always. I said, I love all my children equally. Um, I, I, I treat them differently sometimes, but I love <laughs> them all equally and I could never pick. And um, I, I was speaking at the North Carolina Geospatial conference uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, giving a keynote. And um, I, I, I meant to refer to my second oldest. And I, and I said, my number two son, and everybody <laughs> laughed. And I realized that I, they thought I had rank right. ordered him. And so I just, I sort of said, <laughs> I stumbled in, into this humor. And I, and I just said, Oh, well, I actually tell all my kids they're number two because then it just makes them try harder, right? They're so close there to being go. number one. So <laughs> I just, I, I quietly tell all of them they're the second favorite. Um, it's like the old Avis commercial, right? We're number two. We try harder um, to date myself. 
Um, so yeah, I'm not, you're not going to bait me into talking about any one of the companies. I, I'm so fortunate, whether it's companies that are on orbit, um, mm -hmm. you know, low earth orbit, uh, PNT company like Zona, uh, the, the V Leo approach to electro optical sensing, uh, at Albedo, uh, what ISI US is doing with radar is absolutely eye-watering. Very fun to be involved with a stratospheric balloon imaging company right now <laughs> with near space labs. Uh, the downstream analytic piece uh, to be able to work with the folks at URSA and what they're doing and the value they're delivering out the, the other end, that, that, that piece of bringing stuff together and getting to the so what. Um, you know, and the, the Hermes guys, in fairness, have a special place in my heart. Um, they called me early on. They had no idea who I was. I mean, they, they, mm -hmm. they, they looked me up and they pursued me. Um, but I've been on that journey with them since they were, you know, three months old. And we are four years in now. And I was just down at their factory. And they are fabricating, uh, you know, a hypersonic demonstrator aircraft and they have contracts with the United States Air Force and they've had massive private investment and uh, it is um, it is really you know fun to watch that come together so no I don't have a favorite what I am bl absolutely blessed to be able to do Nick is okay. spend all day every day bouncing from hour to hour zoom to teams to Google meet um, <laughs> back and all forth from one of these to the other being able to horizontally, you know, share uh, best practices um, because some of them are, you know, farther ahead than others. A lot of common threads that have nothing to do with sort of IP uh, and getting to work with these um, brilliant young people who are um, pursuing their dream, who are putting all their chips in the middle of the table to work on a, a you know, an eye-watering technology uh, to keep the nation safer. Um, and uh, yeah, it's humbling. So you've you've been through the gauntlet. You've been you know a military person. You've worked with uh, all all the various players in industry. You you've worked at a nonprofit. You're working with startups. So you've been through. You've just kind of it's safe to say you've seen it all, Keith. Um, <laughs> let's. I like to kind of end with this this question for you. You know, if you have one message for uh, maybe younger people in the community. Um, it, it, for them to be successful, what what would be that that message for a young person out there that's just starting out, that's kind of learning what this geospatial intelligence thing is? Um, what would you say to that that person? Yeah, I you know the the thing that pops into my head is don't let anybody tell you what you can't do. Um, if I had, if I had let people tell me what I couldn't do or why you shouldn't do that. No one's ever done that. Or, you know, that's just not the way it's done. Uh, if I had listened to that stuff, um, maybe I would have had an interesting career. Maybe it would have been somewhat satisfying. Uh, but I have had these amazing opportunities uh, because when somebody said that's not the way we do it, I just kind of said, well, well, why not? Right. I asked that next question. Uh, I had mentors and bosses who supported that and encouraged that, even on days where it irritated the shit out of them, um, you know, they were there. Um, you know, guys like Jim Clapper and Keith Alexander um, and others who uh, were just fantastic 
visionaries um, to work for, to be able to watch them and to be able to have top cover to do things. So don't allow anybody to limit you. Be willing to take risks. Um, as I said earlier in our conversation, look, law and ethics, that's black and white. Just so easy to keep that black and white because the minute those things become gray, it's sort of the road to hell. So keep those things sacred. And mm-hmm. everything else, um, be bold, ask questions, ask why not, volunteer for things. Um, imposter syndrome is real. I have spent mm-hmm. plenty of time sitting in new jobs in my chair going, why did they let me do this? Do they have any idea how ill-prepared I am to do this? <laughs> what were they thinking? Why did I ask for it? I never should have done it. Like, imposter syndrome is real. Unfortunately, women uh, tend to suffer from it much more than men. Challenge the system, challenge yourself, jump at opportunity when you see it. I often talk that opportunity is like a, it's like a window in a video game. It like opens and then it pauses and then it closes. And are you going to dive through that window in that moment? Because you don't know when or if it's going to open again. Um, you know, I've applied for jobs for which I had no business, uh, getting and, and, and I got them and, and it's because I asked, you know, um, so I think it's just be bold. You are your career manager. No one else is looking out for you in the way that you will find mentors, um, look for great bosses, be bold. Don't let anybody limit you. And, uh, the one thing I'll add on sort of unsolicited, and I, I, you know, I've said this before, we all, all are where we are because somebody, often more than one somebody, turned around and extended a hand to us. And it may have happened in school, and it may have happened in the military, it may have happened in the government, it may have happened in a social setting, whatever. People have turned around and extended a hand to you to help you up. I believe that we in turn absolutely, positively, unambiguously have a responsibility to turn around and do the same. Um, turn around to the, the next generation and identify people who have promise, um, pay attention to diversity. So we aren't all helping people up who look like us, um, and, and help people up and help, help, you know, pay it, pay it forward, uh, and encourage them to do it. Um, because those are some of the greatest experiences I have ever had professionally. Um, we're being able to give people a hand up and to watch them flourish. Um, is just super, super rewarding. Keith, what a great message. I think it's a great way to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for being here. We're really honored to have you. If you're interested in learning more about Keith, we're going to put everything you want to know about him in the description. Uh, we'll have his links, everything like that. So if you're looking for a hand up from Keith Mosbach, uh, go ahead and reach out to him on social media. Uh, this is the NDS show. Thanks for what you're doing, Nick. Really important. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for being here.